Hello and welcome to the Interventions Podcast. I'm Mimi Howard. And I'm Barrett Ryder. And today we're joined by Professor Martin Jay. Martin Jay is the Sidney Hellman Ehrman Professor Emeritus of History at the University of California, Berkeley, one of the leading experts on the Frankfurt School, and an intellectual historian with interests across disciplines and topics, philosophy, historiography, and most recently, aesthetics. He has written books on the status or denigration of sight in postmodern French philosophy, on the role of lying in politics, and on cultural semantics. His most recent book is Reason After Its Eclipse on Late Critical Theory, published in 2016. Thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Jay. So you're in the UK for a symposium on your work held at the Center for the History of Political Thought in London. You also spent some time here as an undergraduate student with a year abroad at the London School of Economics. Um, we were wondering if you could tell us a bit about that experience. This must have been a lively time for someone interested in intellectual history and critical theory, with the New Left Review found in 1960, the Socialist Register a few years later, and so on. Um, so do you think your early work on the Frankfurt School responds to this context in any way? Uh, first, thanks very much, uh, Mimi Barrett, for inviting me. It's uh, great to be involved in a project like this. I came uh, when I was 19 to London for the first time. I had been in a union college in upstate New York, Schenectady, which was then a small men's college, a bit uh, cloistered, a bit out of the mainstream. And coming to London was, of course, an enormously thrilling, eye-opening experience. The LSE was a very dynamic place with lots of international students, lots of uh, world-famous faculty, and uh, access to Europe. I traveled, I think, that year, something like 19 uh, weeks uh, from uh, Dublin to Athens, from uh, St. Petersburg to Madrid. And I was not yet, I would say, um, the point of my intellectual development that I really had grasped the, the possibilities of working on something like the Frankfurt School. They themselves were still entirely unknown in the English-speaking world. Uh, even Herbert Marcuse's work had not yet really reached a wide audience. But the year uh, was very important in other ways. I had two German roommates, so German, uh, the German language and German culture became a kind of uh, terra incognita that I was determined to try to at least enter. And I went to classes uh, by people like Karl Popper and, and Michael Oakeshott and Bernard Crick and others, who were not, of course, on the left, but nonetheless who awakened an interest in theory and the relationship between philosophy and politics. So it was a year that prepared me, but did not, I would say, initiate my interest in critical theory. If anything, I think an experience I had um, when I was hitchhiking around Ireland, where I met uh, someone at a hostel who showed me a copy of uh, The Outsider by Colin Wilson, uh, and also talked to me about Eric Heller's The Disinherited Mind, alerted me to the fact that there could be an intimate relationship between ideas and life experience, that ideas were not abstract and uh, simply in books, but had the capacity to motivate uh, your actual life. And even though both of these figures, Heller and uh, Wilson, were basically conservative, and Wilson's a complicated character, you know, much discredited uh, ultimately, but uh, The Outsider was a book that gave me some sense of the importance of marginal and uh, non-mainstream uh, thinkers. And, of course, critical theory in its own way uh, fit into that, although from a much more leftist perspective. So although that year was uh, several years before I became aware of uh, the Western Marxist tradition, broadly speaking, and the Frankfurt School in particular, it did definitely prepare me for the kind of work that I later did in uh, graduate school and uh, have maintained an interest in since. 
Yeah, so speaking about the kind of mix between ideas and lived experience, my next question is a bit about how your ideas affect your method and approach. Uh, so in addition to your work on Western Marxism, you've written a great deal about the field of intellectual history and its relation to the history of political thought and to cultural critique. And it seems to me that you bring the insights of your historical study to bear on your methodological or, or maybe critical project. So most recently, you suggested that as intellectual historians, we would do well to revisit the kind of metaphorological thinking that Hans Blumenberg engages in. That is to say, so in what ways has writing about German philosophy shaped the way you think about the field and the task of intellectual history today? Do you think your background in continental thought has caused your approach to diverge from, say, the, the one here with the Cambridge School and its basis in language philosophy and, and Wittgenstein? I think my own methodological self-consciousness evolved over time and was not something that was much impressed upon me by uh, my training at Harvard with H. Stuart Hughes. He was basically um, an historian who contextualized ideas, but without the rigor that the Cambridge School, I think, uh, you know, basically instilled uh, in our, uh, in our uh, little corner of the universe. He was open to uh, large questions. He was politically involved himself. He ran for the United States Senate in 1962 as a candidate against uh, Teddy Kennedy. He was on the far left at the time. So I saw a link between politics and scholarship certainly through him, but methodologically there was fairly, I would say, um, thin uh, uh, training. But as I, you know, began to do my own work and began to interact with other people who were more reflexive, people who learned from, say, Hayden White or interested in linguistic turn, I began to realize that uh, you couldn't simply speak prose without figuring out exactly what the uh, the syntax uh, and the grammar of what you were doing was. So I would say the turning point, perhaps, in methodological self-consciousness came at a conference that was organized at Cornell by Dominic Capra and Steve Kaplan back in, I believe, it was 1979 on European intellectual history. And it was a conference which pitted our generation, because Le Capra was very aggressive in the way he organized it, against the earlier generation. So the fathers, uh, as it were, and there were no women involved, the fathers uh, against whom it was directed were people like Peter Gay or Carl Shorsky uh, or George Mossy or Stuart Hughes. And Le Capra himself had been uh, much affected by the linguistic turn, in particular by Derrida. And there were other people at the conference, um, like Mark Poster, who were very much in the Foucauldian vein. My own text for that conference, which was published ultimately, was a comparison of the linguistic turn in Hans-Georg Gadamer and Jürgen Habermas. So because of Habermas, there was a connection to critical theory. Quite interestingly, the uh, Cambridge School was not represented at the conference. There was no one who had uh, read Skinner at that time in 1980 or 1979, no one who had made out of the Cambridge School an alternative uh, way of um, doing uh, doing business. I think probably the book edited by James Tully a few years later, and I, I think I'm getting the chronology right, awakened our eyes to the importance of the Cambridge School. But for the reasons that are difficult to say, it never quite had a foothold in the United States. People like Hayden White, who in fact did a response to that whole volume from the Kaplan, the Capra Conference, Hayden White had a much profounder effect. And many, many years later, I had um, the great pleasure of doing a piece pitting or comparing or uh, in some ways integrating Hayden White and Quentin Skinner, and they were gracious enough to respond, it appeared in History and Theory. Uh, Hayden, alas, just died um, a very short while ago, but an enormously influential figure, controversial to be sure, but one who alerted us to the importance uh, of language. So over the years, I've been 
in a way, I guess, uh, you know, sometimes just adventitiously asked to comment on things like the textual, uh, the idea of textuality in intellectual history or the importance of the event in intellectual history. Or most recently, I did a piece on the return of the big idea. And all of these are, in a way, ad hoc. I don't have uh, what I would call a master plan. And I've never trained students to follow anyone particular way of approaching their work. I've always felt that students are best served by allowing them to find their own voice and to pursue an approach that makes them feel comfortable. So if they do a rich and deep contextualization of an idea or a figure or a school, that's great. If, on the other hand, they're sort of pseudo-philosophers and are much more interested in figuring out uh, the deep and complex uh, trajectory of an idea or theory or even system of thought over time, uh, I don't try to discourage them from doing that. So I guess I've uh, maybe 40 dissertations uh, when I was at Berkeley, and they really range over many, many different topics. And I think it would be very difficult to talk about a Berkeley school as a result of that. And I, in a way, I've always felt that that was a, a sign of you know the, uh, the openness of the program rather than anything that could be construed as uh, a monolithic and to some extent coercive approach. Having said that, I've learned enormously from my readings in Cambridge School. I, I have no uh, you know, qualms about saying that our field has been enormously enriched by the types of questions they ask using uh, speech act theory and uh, Wittgenstein and uh, making sure that we avoid a certain kind of inappropriate, anachronistic uh, imposition of later ideas on the ideas of an earlier period. So the lessons of the Cambridge School have been, I think, well absorbed. But of course, I've been eclectic in the way I've tried to include other theorists. And as you know, you suggest in the question, the Frankfurt School itself, I mean, they were not intellectual historians, but they were certainly interested in the history of thought, but with practical intent, with a current agenda, more or less, with the desire to rescue ideas for potentially um, explosive purposes in the future. And I've always seen the dialogue between past and present and potentially the future as part of the uh, the business that we're in. So uh, to that extent, I've tried to uh, be as, um, you know, let's say, uh, inclusive in terms of using the tools that others uh, the Hayden Whites, the Dominic Capras, the Quentin Skinners, and we can add others like Hans Blumenberg have given us. We mentioned metaphorology. There's also, of course, Begriffsgeschichte, the history of concepts with Reinhard Koselleck. The Germans have been very, I think, uh, self-conscious about what they do, and Blumenberg in particular is a figure I've learned a great deal from. Um, recently uh, did a piece on his new book. Uh, well, it's not new because uh, he wrote it many years ago, but it came out recently, a uh, book on Hannah Arendt uh, and Sigmund Freud. So I've you know, always felt that uh, there's a lot still to be learned methodologically, and certainly my colleagues in uh, literary uh, critical fields and uh, philosophers have been part of a collaborative effort to uh, make sense of ideas and how they uh, still have a potential impact in the present and future. You're with us in Cambridge for our graduate conference in Aesthetics and Poetics in the History of Political Thought, for which we were honored to have had you as the keynote. Aesthetics seems to be an important category in your work, ranging from your study of anti-ocular centrism in postmodern philosophy to, more recently, the ways in which a nominalist viewpoint reasserts itself in music and photography. Do you think there is a turn in your work towards treating aesthetics more squarely, or is this interest continuous with your earlier work on the Frankfurt School? Is it part of a normative or methodological mission? Should intellectual historians move away from focusing on texts to representations of thought more broadly conceived? Well, I think there's no uh, radical turn, because as you say, the Frankfurt School was always ecumenical in its concerns, and music, 
film to some extent to the visual arts uh, and uh, obviously the literature were part of the subject matter of their work and uh, Dorno in particular, Benjamin to some extent, uh, were figures who were perhaps most interested in aesthetics and then uh, social theory and philosophy followed. I've also, because of my interest in visuality, been concerned with the ways in which traditional art history, traditional approaches to aesthetic objects, can be, uh, in a complicated way, expanded to include visual culture more broadly speaking, uh, including photography and advertising and, you know, what uh, Guy Debord called the spectacle of everyday life. So I think that aesthetics as a general tool, I mean, aesthetics in the sense of theory of art and the theory of the reception experience uh, of art, is something that is a useful way to make sense of our interface with the world, that we have sensual interactions, and aesthesis, of course, includes the body and the senses, so it originates in that, that we have sensual interactions with the world, which uh, involve a mediation of the external object uh, from the internal uh, representation or reception or conceptualization of it. So there is always, we might say, some sort of uh, sensual filter that uh, will cause a swerve or uh, intensification or have its own uh, uh, let's say, even logic behind it. And intellectual history, at least in the United States, has taken the uh, history of uh, thinking about art and the history of art, uh, broadly speaking, quite seriously, um, going all the way back to Lovejoy and the history of ideas. I mean, he has, for example, a famous essay on uh, Chinese gardening style. So it's it's possible to think of aesthetics simply as one of the things that we look at. I and mean, I'm always struck by the fact that, come back to the Cambridge School, that in Britain, political thought, political theory, seems to be the center of gravity of intellectual history. In America, we take political thought quite seriously, but it's, uh, I think, not as much the center and as a result, uh, the history of uh, aesthetic movements, the history of individuals who are half artists, half philosophers, uh, the history of people like Nietzsche who believe somehow that the aesthetic is the essence even of philosophy have had a great impact on us. Now, the work that I did on visuality in particular has had an impact in the world of art history and the world even of art practice. And it's been enormously gratifying that artists... Um, have found, to some extent, a vocabulary uh, to explain what they do and to perhaps even sharpen the uh, intentions of uh, their actual uh, art practice. The one essay that really had uh, the biggest impact in this regard is the essay on scopic regimes of modernity, which has become a kind of, you know, cano almost canonical text in art history, uh, visual culture programs. And uh, the tripartite division of uh, modern visual experience uh, has seemed to uh, resonate in ways that, you know, had uh, quite a an impact. So in that particular area, I've been uh, encouraged by the fact that this work has had actually some sort of uh, impact beyond uh, the narrow discipline of uh, intellectual history itself. So to continue with our conference theme, we have a question about poetics, uh, not precisely about its place in your work, but rather about whether you think about the poetics of your scholarly voice. Readers of your books and articles come to expect anecdotes, humor, an admixture of serious philosophical material, and lightness of reference. Who do you imagine your reader to be? Well, it's an excellent question. I mean, I, I've never thought, I mean, poetics is a pretty highfalutin word to use to apply to, you know, the simple kind of stuff that I turn out. I mean, I think there was an interesting break in the voice and uh, in the audience uh, I either intentionally or unintentionally was trying to reach. In 1987, when I was invited by Robert Boyers to do a column for the journal Salmagundi. Salmagundi is a small magazine in the spirit of, uh, say, the Partisan Review, and it has had uh, you know, significant impact 
with lots of poetry and uh, fiction as well as uh, critical essays being published. And quite a number of eminent um, writers, John Coetzee or Joyce Carol Oates or you know, people like George Steiner and Susan Sontag writing for it over the years. So it was a great honor to be asked. And I've done in the past 30 years uh, more than 50 columns for them. And the column form, as Boyer's, uh, you know, tried to instill in me at the beginning, is one in which the personal voice and the anecdotal and the informal motive uh, address becomes um, at least uh, an option. So if you can avoid footnotes, uh, all to the better. If you can bring uh, some sort of, you know, let's say, uh, personal touch and not uh, assume the omniscient voice of the traditional academic uh, narrator, all to the better. So a number of those essays... Uh, have been republished in various collections uh, of my work. And a number of them have had, uh, you know, more of an impact than one would imagine, have been republished or translated. And I try in those essays to move from some sort of episode, uh, you know, a, a trip somewhere or a... Um, a kind of personal reminiscence of something in my childhood. The last essay, for example, was on stamp collecting, which dealt with Walter Benjamin and stamp collecting, but also included uh, long discussions of my own childhood uh, stamp collection. I'm doing one at the moment, uh, in the middle of it, on a column that I, uh, well, not column, but a, a kind of question and answer series that I did with the Tehran Times in Iran, which ended when uh, basically they tried to censor one of the things that I wrote. I'm going to try to turn that into an essay about the uh, problems of free speech and censorship. So what I usually do in those essays is go from the local, the personal, the idiosocratic, the anecdotal, to some larger theme and try to tease out of that something that's uh, meaningful. And the audience is um, a very different audience. Um, I mean, I've even had responses from, you know, very strange uh, readers. One, I a man named Ira Einhorn, who actually um, was in hiding then for committing a murder, wrote to me from his hiding in France, and then was later disclosed to have uh, been uh, uh, a murderer of uh, a woman in uh, Philadelphia. He was a leftist icon for a while. And I then wrote an essay about that, uh, about his writing me and my response and my discovery of uh, his identity uh, called uh, Pen Pals with the Unicorn Killer. So, you know, there's a lot of grist for the mill, and it, it's... Uh, a very rare privilege, actually. Most academics are schooled in a certain type of writing, certain type of persona in which they hide who they are. They hide their own investments, their own, let's say, uh, you know, embarrassing uh, personal qualities or experiences. And the column has allowed me to avoid, uh, you know, falling simply into that voice. So just to give one final example... I discovered a letter that Adorno wrote to Marcuse after I uh, visited him in Frankfurt, in which he dismissed me as uh, the German was classic Kerl, which means a horrible guy, and went on to say that I had uh, you know, basically been only interested in sensational facts, and he said that I was in Montagnola molesting Max Horkheimer. So I wrote an essay after discovering that called The Ungrateful Dead, which dealt with my response and talked about Adorno's own personal difficulties as a, uh, you know, a critic of other people. And I, it was kind of fun to write. So, uh, you know, that kind of, of uh, essay, um, I could never have submitted that to a scholarly journal. So that gave me, in a way, a different audience, a broader audience, a less formal audience. You've written recently on the topic of alienation, tracing its privileged place in the mid-20th century zeitgeist. Would you describe your work as responding in some way to the history of emotions or even affect theory? Um, and in general, what are some of your more recent projects and how might these projects relate to different kinds of disciplinary horizons? I don't think I'm really equipped to deal with affect uh, in the way that some people have spent a lot of time thinking about it are. And I, I don't really employ, although I write about psychoanalytic ideas, I don't employ them. Uh, so I'm not sure I would say that my work is 
really steeped uh, in this particular effective turn. Uh, but having said that, I certainly am very interested in the ways in which reason or conceptualization or dispassionate intellectual uh, work is always uh, refracted through and uh, to some extent distorted by deeper and less uh, self-evident concerns, whether these be understood ideologically or simply part of the human condition. So I think I've always been aware of that. The work I did, for example, on Siegfried Krakauer was very much influenced by a sense of him as a person and some of his own uh, rather uh, peculiar fetishes, his refusal to talk about uh, his age, for example, his uh, desire to be totally extraterritorial and uh, be outside the category, say, of Weimar intellectual or being associated with the Frankfurt School. He didn't like that. I mean, he was a figure who really sought uh, a certain kind of alienation, we might say, uh, in a positive way. So I, I've been, I would say, from a fairly early uh, stage of my career, concerned uh, when it was important to, uh, to take that into account. As for my current projects, I mean, I have a lot of little ones. Uh, I'm supposed to be doing a book on the issue of nominalism, the idea of the event, and photography, uh, bringing together some of these uh, philosophical issues with the visual cultural issues that uh, I began to deal with after Downcast Eyes. And I published several essays on this, photography and the event, and uh, a couple of essays dealing with what I call magical nominalism, play, of course, on magical realism. And I've used that partly to describe Krakauer, uh, partly to describe aspects of Adorno's work. I did a piece called Adorno and Nominalism. So this may coalesce into a book. At the moment, I'm collecting some essays uh, on the Frankfurt School, a dozen or so essays written in the past few years uh, for a collection that uh, Verso is going to bring out, I think under the title uh, Splinters in Your Eye. So uh, you know, we'll see how that works out. And then there are always lots of little ad hoc invitations to do this, that, or the other thing, which keep you sort of from any larger, big project. I mean, at a certain point in life, the horizon of expectation, you might say, begins to uh, shorten. And so you don't uh, set yourself the mammoth task of writing a book like uh, Songs of Experience or, you know, Marxism in Totality, uh, where you have to spend 10 years and, you know, really... Uh, try to uh, do a big, big synoptic content analysis of an awful lot of work. So I, I'm now working, I would say, in you know the shorter forms uh, that allow me maybe to actually finish something. You said you've just been dog sledding near the Arctic Circle. What other post-retirement work and non-work-related plans do you have in, in store? Well, to the extent that I have a bucket list, um, you know, the dog sledding was a one-off that my wife and I did in the trip we took to Stockholm. We decided to go north to Karuna and had a really fabulous day in an amazing landscape, you know, being dragged by uh, eight huskies. So that, that was really a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I don't know. It's possible. I mean, I have this fantasy of going on a safari to Africa. My wife did that about 20 years ago in South Africa. And I have invitations to go. I've never quite picked up an invitation to go to Africa. It's the one continent that I haven't visited. So that would be, uh, you know, maybe on the bucket list. Uh, but, you know, you reach a certain point in life, you're lucky you get up in the morning and, uh, you know, can still walk to get some breakfast. So I, I don't uh, have, I would say, enormous ambitions. You know, several grandchildren need to be uh, tended. And uh, so, you know, lots of uh, cultivating of the garden. But on the other hand, I still have... Uh, you know, luckily, I still have uh, a kind of, I guess, on a constituency is too fancy a word, but people out there interested in what I have to say about various things, some of which I know a bit about, others of which I simply am willing to learn about. So I'm, I'm, uh, it's fun to actually be asked to write about something or give a talk about something that is not something you've worked on or something you feel you're an expert on, but, you know, gives you a chance to learn. So I think that's, in a way, more likely than uh, more dog sledding in the future. 
Thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for another episode of Interventions, the Intellectual History Podcast. <laughs>